0: Hi everyone, I'm Pastor Michael. We are doing a sermon series on the attributes of God. The attributes of God, because when we are in a time of crisis, when we are facing this overwhelming, you know, insurmountable obstacle, and I believe that this is such a time, the whole world is gripped by this pandemic, then what we need most of all is a vision of God. We need to know who he is, what he is like, and then we will see our problems in their proper place, which is underneath the wisdom and the goodness of God. And so we're looking at the God of the Bible. What does the Bible tell us about God? And in the previous sermon, we looked at um, the first attribute, which is that God is incomprehensible. He is incomprehensible, which means that we can never understand God in his fullness. But he will always be a mystery to us. He will always be hidden from us because he is infinite and we are finite. And today we're going to look at a second attribute, which is that God is self-sufficient. He is self-sufficient, which means that God has within himself all that he needs, He doesn't depend on us. He doesn't need us for his existence or for his happiness. It's a very sobering and um, humbling doctrine, but it's the truth. And if we can receive it, therein will we find our joy. And so we're going to look at Exodus chapter 3, which is one of the most famous passages in the Bible. It's the story of Moses Meeting God in the burning bush and God revealing who he is. And so um, the text is going to be displayed to you. I'm going to read to you from Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and then also 13 and 14. Verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So I have four points. This is my outline. Number one, we're going to look at First, the self-existence of God. Secondly, we're going to look at the self-happiness of God. Third, we're going to look at our human condition of dependency so that God doesn't need us, but we need him. And then number four, what this all tells us about the gospel. So let's begin. Number one, the self-existence of God. And here, let's just jump right into the story. In verse 13, Moses asked God, What is his name? Because Moses says, when I go back to my people Israel, they're going to ask me, what is the name of your God? Now, this is a much more profound question than we realize because, you know, in the modern world, your name, right? Somebody's name is just a sound that we associate with that person, right? A lot of parents will say... You know, for the most part, you know, I chose this name quite often because I liked the way that it sounds. And, and, and that's fine. It's a perfectly legitimate way to choose a name. But in the ancient world, your name was who you are. Your name communicated the very essence of your being. And so when Moses asked God for his name, he was asking God, what is your nature? What is the very essence of your being? It's a huge question. And so think about it. What do you think the answer should be? Should God say, I am the creator? That sounds right. But the problem is, if God says, I am the creator, then who God is, is in relation to his creation. So that God is defined by the universe, so that who God is then is he's the creator of the universe. Do you see the problem? Think about the way human beings introduce themselves. You know, when I introduce myself to somebody new in the the church, I'll say to them, hi, I'm Pastor Michael. I will define myself in terms of my role. I am one of the pastors of this church. Or if I meet one of my kid's friends, I'll say, Hi, I'm Judah's father, or I'm Noah's father. Or if I meet Christina's friend, I'll say, Hi, I'm Christina's husband. So that who I am, notice, is always in reference to some other thing. That is how we communicate who we are. And so it must be. Because you see, human beings, we are contingent beings. We are contingent beings. Contingent means that our existence, our identity, depends on something else. Something else gives us our meaning and our purpose. I am a husband. I am a father. I'm a pastor. I live in Castro Valley. I'm an American. Ultimately, I'm a Christian. I'm a son of my Heavenly Father. But God is not A contingent being. And so when God introduces himself, what should he say? The answer is so stupendous. It's so mind-boggling that we can meditate on it for the rest of our lives and we will never, never get to the bottom. Because even if God should say, I am love or I am holy, right? That is right so far as it goes, but if that is the very essence of who God is, then don't you see, love and holiness would be sort of outside of God. He would be defined by these things. In fact, they would be above Him so that His identity comes from them. And therefore, God can never say, I am something, because whatever that something is, He is contingent to it. Instead, God says, I am who I am. That is my name. I am who I am. Because nothing defines God. Nothing is a reference point by which God is described. But instead, and this is really going to cook your noodle, God defines himself in relation only to himself. Don't you see It's a self-referential name. I am who I am. That is the very essence of God's nature. We are in deep waters now. Theologians have a word for this, which is the aseity of God. The aseity of God. Aseity is not really a word that people commonly use. It's a very um, specialized, uh, technical word but I want you to know it's a very exciting word. R.C. Sproul says that every time he sees this word, he gets chills up and down his spine because it describes the very nature of God. So the word aseity, and I I wrote it down so you guys can see it, right? The word aseity um, comes from the Latin. The word ah means from. And the word say, s e means self. Okay, So, ase means from yourself. God's aseity is his from-himselfness. God's aseity is his power, therefore, to exist from himself. It's the power of self-existence. Everything else has an origin. Everything else has a, a beginning, a causal link from which it originated. But only God has aseity. Only God has what Jesus describes in John 5:26. He says he says God has life in himself. God's life does not come from anything external to him but only himself. We see this also not only in the divine name, but also in the burning bush. You know, God is so gracious. Not only does he tell us who he is by his name, but he shows us what he is through this image. And in verse 2, the second half of verse 2, the text says, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. It was not consumed. This is very strange. You see, the bush is on fire. It's ablaze, and yet... It was unconsumed so that it was perpetually on fire. This is not normal because normally a fire is sustained by fuel, right? There has to be some kind of combustible fuel. And when that fuel is spent, the fire dies. If you've ever seen a wildfire in progress, you know that a dry bush will just light up in seconds and then there's nothing but ashes. But this fire keeps burning. This is a self-generating, self-perpetuating fire because you see the fire is not dependent on the bush. The fire is independent of the bush because it has within itself the power to burn. This is an image of who God is. God is self-sustaining, self-generating, and he is independent of the world. That leads us to our second point, the the self-happiness of God. So if God is independent from the world, if he doesn't need the world, then why did he create the world? In Genesis 1.1, these are the opening words of Scripture. It says, in the beginning, God. Right? In the beginning, God. The Bible tells us that before the creation of the world, before there was time and space and and the universe, forever and ever, from all of eternity, there was only God. God was by himself. He was eternally solitary in his being. And so we imagine, well, God must have been lonely The the emptiness, the silence of his existence must have been awful. And so, out of his longing for companionship, he created human beings. Or perhaps we think, you know, here is God in all of his greatness, all of his splendor, and yet no one is there to recognize it. No one is there to publicly acknowledge it. And so God created human beings that they might worship and adore him. Here's what God has to say about that. In Psalm 50, verses 9 through 12, listen to this. God says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your foed, From your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and all of its fullness are mine. You see, God, we do not worship God because he 's missing something it 's not as if God is an insecure God you know it 's not as if he 's saying, "I wonder if I really am that great, nobody's praising me. How do I know? So then why do we praise God? You know Scripture resounds with the call to praise the name of the Lord, so why does it do that and here 's the answer. It is not because God needs our praise. It is because we need to praise Him. It is fitting, it is right to acknowledge the greatness of God and our joy and our fulfillment comes when we praise and when we worship Him. But you need to understand that this is very important. We do not add to God's glory with our praise. We cannot give to one who is infinitely rich, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. All the world is his. What could we possibly give to him that he does not already have? Paul in Acts 17 verse 24 says this, God does not live in temples, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. God does not need our worship. So then why did God create the world? If not from, some, from any deficiency in himself, then what is the answer? And here's the answer. God created the world out of the fullness of his being. Out of, the, out of his cup that overflows. To use the language of Paul in Ephesians 1.5, out of his good pleasure. But it is not because God lacked something. It is not because God was lonely. Do you know why? Because God is a trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One being, three persons, eternally existent. And so from all of eternity, eons and eons, before the creation of the world, God was living in this perfect community, this perfect harmony and love relationship between the persons of God, each one praising one another, adoring and and delighting in each other, lifting each other up, caring for one another forever and ever. And we get a little hint of it in John 17, verse 24, when Jesus says, Father, you have loved me before the foundation of the world, or my favorite verse, John 1.18, the Son is in the bosom of the Father. We have no idea, we have no idea what the life of the Trinity was like and is like. But we have this little dim hint, I think when we think about our own experiences with people, Think about those moments of sheer delight when you're with somebody else. Think about those moments when you're hanging out with your best friends, your lifelong friends, and you're laughing and you're sharing stories, and you're just enjoying each other's company. And for a few hours, it's perfect. Or think about those moments of just perfect oneness with your spouse. I remember the first time I took Christina to Yosemite. Yosemite is my favorite place. And I remember we went down to the Merced River. And this was uh, in the late summer. And so the Merced was, you know, flowing really low. It was just a gentle creek at this point. And we took off our shoes and we waded into the water. And it was just this pure, pristine, just sparkling water. And the sun was shining. And when you looked out, this incredible vista of, Of Half Dome and El Capitan. And I remember we were holding hands, walking along the bed of the river, talking, and it was just perfect. But because of our fallen condition, because of human sin, these moments are fleeting. And the moment we have them in our hands like grains of sand, they're gone. But I want you to know that God, in His triune nature, they are not fleeting moments. But from all of eternity, He enjoys perfect fellowship, perfect oneness, so that from eternity, for eons and eons of eternity, He was happy. I want you to know that the God of the Bible is an infinitely happy God. And therefore, what, could, what can the world possibly add to that and give to God? One of my favorite quotes is um, a quote by C.S. Lewis. I came across this a couple of months ago again. And when I read it, I just almost fell out of my seat because it, the vision of it was just so amazing to me. Listen to this. This is from his book, The Four Loves, one of my favorite books. He says... To be sovereign of the universe is no great matter to God. In himself, at home in the land of the Trinity, he is sovereign of a far greater realm. We must keep always before our eyes that vision in which God carries in his hand a little object like a nut. And that nut is all that is made. I think that's an incredible image. The land of the Trinity is a far, far greater realm than we can possibly imagine. And therefore, we do not give to Him. He gives to us. This is our relationship with God. And that leads me to my third point, human dependency. So human beings, by contrast, we are Dependent beings. We all have an origin. We all have a time when we did not exist. We all have a mother and a father who gave us life. We all all had someone to nurse us and hold us and take care of us as infants or else we wouldn't be here. And then even as adults, we still depend on a vast network of other people to provide us a living, to give us companionship and a life. And even if you're a survivalist, right? even if you say, I'm going to cut myself from human civilization, I'm just going to live off the land, I'm not going to need anybody else. Don't you see, even then, you still need the natural world to provide you food, even the air that you breathe. And therefore, no human being can say, by my own power, I exist. By my own power, I live. But it goes even further than that. Because the Bible says that moment by moment, it is ultimately God who sustains us. You know, some people think that God is a divine watchmaker. And at the beginning of time, he wound up the clock of the universe, and then he took a step back. You know, and once in a while he'll intervene, once in a while he'll tinker and meddle and, you know, do a miracle here or there. But otherwise, the universe is running by its own power. But the Bible says that not only has God created the world, but he continually sustains it. Listen to Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. He upholds the universe by the power of his word. Listen to Colossians 1 17. In him all things hold together. Acts 17 verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being. You see, there is not a single atom in this entire universe that is operating by its own power, but God is continually, moment by moment, holding up every atom, sustaining every subatomic particle, so that the universe is not a clock running by its own internal gears. That's the wrong metaphor. The better metaphor is that the whole universe is a song that God is singing. And he continues to sing it moment by moment because the moment he stops singing, the song will cease to exist. And God does this whether we acknowledge him or not. You know, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, Jesus says, God makes the sun to shine. He causes the rain to come even upon the the just and the unjust. So that even if we should raise our fist in defiance against God, we are like a little child sitting in his father's lap, slapping the father. And we are heading the father's face, don't you see, only because the father in that moment is holding his child. He is sustaining his child. But what should happen if the father should cast Child away. In Daniel chapter 4, there's a story of King Nebuchadnezzar. And one day, Nebuchadnezzar, he was walking along the roof of his palace, and he was looking down on the city of Babylon, which was the greatest city of its day in the ancient world. And he was looking at it with this self-satisfied feeling, and he said to himself, he said, Look at all that I have done. This great and magnificent city, I have built it by the might of my own hand. And the text says, even as the words were still forming in his mouth, God struck him down. And he became, Nebuchadnezzar became like a beast of the field. His hair grew long, his fingers became like nails, and he ate ate grass like the oxen of the field. And then after a while, God restored him. And he came back to his right mind. And Nebuchadnezzar, he looked up to heaven and he says, in verse 34, listen to this. He says, Blessed is the Most High. Praise and honor to him who lives forever. For all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Don't you see... True knowledge, true wisdom comes when we acknowledge our true estate, our true condition. Isaiah 40, 40, verse 6 says, All flesh is grass. Every human being. We are like the flowers of the field. Today we bloom. Tomorrow we wither and fade away. James 4:14 4, says, We are like a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Right? Our entire existence, from infancy to the grave, we are like a little puff of air, a little vapor that appears and then evaporates and then leaves no trace. You know, it's really interesting that in our story, God waits until Moses is 80 years old. You know, Moses was once this mighty prince of Egypt, full of vigor, full of the pride of life. But then in the prime of his life, when he was 40 years old, he was banished from the kingdom. And for the next 40 years, he lives in absolute obscurity, toiling away in this forgotten corner of the earth as this humble shepherd until he had come to this place of emptiness and the absolute end of himself. Why did God do that? Why did God wait and wait until Moses had lost all of his self-confidence, all of his self-reliance? And the answer is, it's because the only way that God will ever use us, the only way that God will ever come into our lives is if we recognize our absolute need for him, our absolute dependency on him. Jesus says in John 15, verse 5, do you remember this? Jesus says, I am divine. You are the branches. You can do nothing apart from me. Do you believe that? Does your life show that? I want to ask you a series of questions and I really want you to reflect on this question. Is your life filled with prayer? Because you acknowledge that moment by moment you need Him. Are you constantly studying the Scriptures? Are you constantly searching them to discover God's will and guidance for your life? Is your life filled with an uninterrupted rhythm of worship and thanksgiving so that you might acknowledge the one to whom you owe everything? Are you resilient in adversity? Because you know that when you face obstacles and hardships in life, you are coming face to face with your natural limitedness. And this is an opportunity for you to lean on the strength of God, not your own strength. Are you embedded in rich Christian community because you know you need counsel, encouragement, correction from your Christian friends. What does your life say about your doctrine of God? Do you, does it say that you are a dependent being or that you believe you're self-sufficient? Finally, last point, what does this tell us about the gospel? I want you to know there is no gospel there can be no gospel without the self-sufficiency of god because you and i we are tempted to think that god gets something out of the bargain something out of our salvation right some you know a little benefit right in some way he must be enriched by the experience of it because this is how human charity works you know every time human beings, we give to the poor, we get something out of it. If you read um, behavioral economics, it'll tell you that there is actually no such thing as pure altruism, but there is always self-interest involved. So that when people give to charity, you know, they're thinking about their public reputation, they're thinking about, you know, social prestige, or when they give to the poor, it's so that they could feel virtuous, so they could feel good about themselves. And you know, uh, charity, charitable organizations, they understand this you know, complex set of motivations that drive us. And so I don't want to say that they manipulate us, but they're constantly crafting their pitch to maximize their appeal, to maximize the donations because human charity is always in exchange so that it is not only the recipient, but it is the giver that gets something out of it. But not so with God. The grace of God is not like that. And because God is perfectly and fully satisfied in Himself, lacking nothing, therefore, when He saves us, it is purely by grace. It is a true and perfect gift. It is not something that we can earn. We're not giving back to God to make it His worthwhile. We can do no good works that could possibly add anything to God. So that Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, it is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. Secondly, I want you to know that only a God who is self-sufficient, is truly trustworthy and unshakable in his commitment and in his love for us. Because if God had any needs, if God had any longings outside of himself that could not be met, that would be his weakness. That would be his vulnerability. You know, if you read spy novels, you know, the way that you get somebody to turn, right? The way you compromise somebody is you have to do a deep dive and you have to research their life and you have to find out, you know, do they have gambling debts? Are they having an affair? And then you use, that's their vulnerability, and then you use that to squeeze them, to pressure them, and to turn them into your agent. But God cannot be turned. He cannot be compromised. And therefore, his love for us is steadfast, immovable, unwavering. Finally, I want to close with this final point. If you go to the New Testament in John chapter 8, Jesus is contending with the religious leaders. And at the end of the conversation, it's very interesting, suddenly, in verse 58, he says, he says this, he says, Before Abraham was born... I am. He says, before Abraham was born, I am. He doesn't say, you know, before Abraham existed, I was there, right? Which by itself would be an amazing, you know, claim. That would mean he's 2,000 years old at, at the very least. He purposely uses the incorrect grammar. He says, before Abraham was born, I am. The religious leaders knew exactly what he was saying, and they picked up stones to kill him. Because you see, Jesus was deliberately evoking the divine name, the personal covenant name of God that was spoken to Moses from the burning bush. And therefore, do you understand what Jesus is saying? He is saying, the eternal one, The one who is self-existent. The one who has from within himself the power of existence and being. The one who is fully happy and content in himself that nothing could be added. The only one who could say, I am who I am. He came down into this world and he became a man. He became weak and vulnerable. And then he went to the cross. And then he laid down his life for us. Because he loves us. Even though there is nothing we can do. Even though he doesn't get anything out of us that he doesn't already have. He saves us. And he gives us eternal life in him. Life in the Trinity. I want you to know that for all of eternity we will think about that and we will never exhaust the wonder of it. Please join me in prayer. Almighty God, this is too great a a thing for us to contemplate. And what can we say? We are unworthy servants. You are seated above the circle of the earth and all of its inhabitants are like grasshoppers before you. All the nations, all the kingdoms of the world, all the might of human ingenuity and cleverness is like dust on the scales. It is like a little droplet from a bucket in your hand. Who are we that you are mindful of us? That you should set your love upon us? That you should call us sons and daughters? That you should adopt us and make us co-heirs with Christ and to bring us into the life of the Trinity that we might enjoy fellowship and love forever and ever in you. This is too wonderful for us. Lord, help us to have a little glimpse of it even now in this life and in the life to come forever and ever.